Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you all. Good afternoon. My name is David Ward. I'd like to welcome you all to the National Portrait Gallery for today's program, sponsored by our education department and in conjunction with our exhibition, Hide Seek. Many of you know um, the animating spirit of Hide Seek is Walt Whitman. And what you may not know is that Walt Whitman is a continual presence in this building. He was a nurse here during the Civil War. Afterwards, he worked in the Interior Department, from which position he was fired for his authorship of that immoral book, Leaves of Grass. Um, and his presence in the building is made palpable today with our guest. She contains multitudes. <laughs> she always sings the body electric. <laughs> Poet, artist, rocker hard rocker, and now memoirist, welcome Patty Smith. Thank you. So a, a National Book Award, you're getting kind of respectable in your middle age. I have no problem with that. <laughs> so, so you've adjusted to fame. Well, I, it's... it's uh, I, I, find, um, I find these things to be wonderful. I have a, a medal from the French Republic when I was a teenager. I won Spartan of the Year. And wow. uh, I, um, I mean, they aren't what we aspire to when we're doing our work, but, you know, in achieving them, it, it makes me happy. No, it should. I, one of the things that you said during your, your the, the sense of almost surprise and... Um, gratitude when you receive the award. And I, I just wanted to start, because one of the things that's so great about, the, about Just Kids is, is it, particularly for those of us of a certain age, it takes us back to a time that seems impossibly close, yet very distant. And, and I just want you, because I think you believe in luck, and I, I, I just want you to talk about that moment when you arrived at the bus station in South Jersey and didn't have enough for the fare. Well, I... Um it was 1967, and uh, I got laid off in Philadelphia from the factory I was working. There wasn't any work, really, because the New York shipyard had closed and the Camden Philly area had no work. So I just decided to come to New York City and get a job. And I had just enough money for a bus ticket. And when I went in to get my ticket, they had raised the fare. And uh, I was devastated. And I went into a phone booth. Um, that was before the Ice Ages. They had phone booths. Yeah. And um, to call my sister to um, try to figure out what to do next. And somebody had left a little white plastic purse in the phone booth, and it had $30 in it, which was a little more than I made in a week at the factory. I think we have enough pictures, right? Thanks. And uh, <laughs> thanks. Um, and um, I went through the moral dilemma of what to do. There was no identification in the purse, um, and I, I just imagined that providence had given me a hand, and and uh, I took the money and uh, went to New York City. But I will say, even though I did that. I have never forgotten my unknown benefactor. Right. I figured it was some girl, and God bless her. I am always, uh, I always thank her. I never forget, even though I have no idea what she looked like or anything about her, except that she had a white plastic purse. It, but it, it, it's, it's interesting the way that, that that momentary, fragmentary event connects what I sense, though, is a larger... Um, meaning in your work. I mean, you end the, the forward to Just Kids with I, I live for love, I live for art, and, and, and you fold your, your hands to providence. And it seemed to me that, that animating your whole time in New York, um, or, your, or your career for that matter, is this notion of, of flow, of the notion of, of as, as you put it, I'm a sculptor hacking away, not quite sure what I'm doing. Yeah, like a blind sculptor hacking away. But 
well, really, I, I think some of it is, I love this little book, The Alchemist. Mm -hmm. And uh, in The Alchemist, it says, uh, one of the most wonderful things, it says that the universe uh, conspired to help the shepherd boy uh, because he maintained the language of enthusiasm. And I think that all through life, I've had some really rough times, very hard times, but um, I, I don't know. I just feel like that, like that shepherd boy. I'm always optimistic. I'm always looking for the good to happen. And I think that if you keep open like that, you won't be uh, stuck in the, in the mire of your bad luck. Right. You'll be more lifted up by your good luck. Right. I mean, this whole notion of flow experience seems to me to be really interesting in the, in the, in the way that you did it. But I, I've noticed there's a, it seems to me, an obvious difference between, I mean, I, I believe you see yourself as a poet first. Um, the, the, your poetry and the memoirs seem to me to be exist on opposite ends of a sort of stylistic scale. And, and, and you say at the, at the end... Of the of the memoir that you promised that you'd write about Robert and 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 you fulfilled this promise. Could could you just take us through the why now how? Well, uh, Robert. I mean, Robert died on March ninth, nineteen eighty nine, and um, early in the morning. And March eighth, I spoke to him right before right. he lost consciousness, and we both knew he was dying. And I simply said, what, what do you want me to do for you? What, what can I do? I, I promised him that I would do as I always did, magnify his name, write of him, and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and he asked me some specific things, but he, he said, will you tell our story? Mm -hmm. And I knew what he meant. He meant our story, starting from when we were 20. Only I could tell it. So I... I promised I would, but it took me a long time. It took me a long time because I had the death of my husband, my brother, my parents, um, two small children to take care of, and it was only in recent years that I could totally uh, claim this task. How did you claim it stylistically, though? That's a, a thing that, that interests me. That the the the, the, the 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 memoir is such an elegy. It's almost a pastoral. Um, it it, it Contrast since I just reread all your poems. I mean, the, with, with your poems are these kind of shards and, and, and fragments, and um, and the, the the element again of, of of smoothness in the memoir. I mean, it, it's almost preter. I have to say, it's almost preternatural. Well, I I, um, I've, I wrote a lot in the '80s uh, uh -huh. when I retired from public life. Uh, I didn't publish hardly anything, but I was writing continuously. So I was, um, you know, I had some grasp on, mm -hmm. uh, on, on, on uh, writing. But I wrote this book really for two, with, for two reasons. One, of course, to fulfill my promise, and the other to give Robert to the people, to give him as a holistic human being right. and not just as a dying artist. Right. And uh, Robert wasn't very much a reader, so I wanted to write a book that I thought he might like to read and that the people would like. I, I wanted to write a book that had you know, a certain level of uh, craftsmanship that anyone could appreciate, but also a, a non-reader would right. be happy to breeze through. Right. And, uh, and that was my task. I was writing to the people. When I'm writing poetry, I don't think of anybody. Right. I'm just, it's more narcissistic. I'm just writing to please myself. But I wrote the book really with the, pe with the reader in mind and trying to create a, almost like a film for right. the people, like a little movie. Right. So, I mean, you arrived in, in Manhattan in 67, that kind of precursor year before the, the terrible year of 1968. And you talk a little bit briefly about the sort of paranoia that was in the air. But, but one of the things that, again, and, and I'm, I guess I'm staying with an issue of flow or smoothness is the, the way in which, and I'll be blunt, there is so much death in the memoir. I mean, you arrive, and John Coltrane is dead the same month, and, and it goes through um, a, a whole series of public and, and private deaths. And how did you, and, and it's a remarkable achievement. It, 
the way that you fold those into this narrative seems to me to, I think to be the death uncanny. is part. I think part of that is my mother. Uh, my mother lost her mother as a child. My father lost his mother early. I never met my grandparents because they right. all died young. Uh, my my childhood friend died. Um, there was a lot of death in our family, right. and I saw how my mother. Um, you know, my mother was obliged to go to the funeral of her father who died right. young and then come home and cook food for us and do laundry and, and, and laugh and, and, and help us right. with homework. Uh, she always kept things going. Right. She always found, you know, uh, the, the happy way, right. the, 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 the glass being half full and right. instead of half empty. And I think I learned some of that from her. Right. Yeah, again, it seems to me that there's, in, 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 there's this combination in you of this... You want that off? No, I like seeing... I'm sorry. <laughs> just like to... Just curious. So, okay, Max is Kansas City. Tell us about Max wow. is Kansas City. <laughs> I'm sorry. The Max is Kansas... Well, we're jumping ahead. But the, 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 I interrupted the, you. No, I'm it's sorry. fine. Well, uh, Max's Kansas City, uh, when when Robert and I moved to the Chelsea Hotel in 1969, um, I had been in Paris most of the spring and summer. Robert had explored Manhattan and had met some of the people in the Warhol scene. He had seen Midnight Cowboy. His trajectory was more toward the Warhol scene, and the Warhol scene, at least the second generation, was stationed at the Max's right. Kansas City. I wasn't really interested yeah, in it. Yeah, you always seem to be standing on the corner. Yeah, I was just, I, I just wasn't that interested in it, but it was so important to him, so that's where right. we went at night. You know, you could hang out with, we all hung out together. Right. Everyone was aspiring to be something, to do something. And in that way, it was, it was great because everyone had a vision that they were moving right. toward. And uh, so it was a, um, it wasn't just uh, a social scene, it was a very creative scene. Well, yeah, that's again going back to the 67, 68 period, that period of of sort of the the sense of uh, weirdly, again, two ideas at the same time of sort of impending doom, but nonetheless incredible creativity, it just seemed to me. I mean, and and again, it, 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 it shoots through the memoir continually. I have to ask you, um, this is almost a domestic question, but did you and Robert ever quarrel? Because um, there's, there's actually the, the thing... We bickered. We bickered over the stupidest things. You know, like, I re, you know, he would say things like, uh, you know, he'd take me to... Robert took me to my first um, uh, open mic because he wanted right. me to read poetry right. in public, and it was uh, manned by Jim Carroll. And we're getting ready, and I just you know, as usual, dressed like Baudelaire or something. And Robert came out wearing gold lame pants with a gold lame codpiece that he had designed. <laughs> and, uh, and right before that, we, uh, we just had a coffee. And he had a coffee and I had tea. And I liked honey, and they didn't have honey in the diner, so I would carry it with me. And he'd say, Patty... Don't bring that out. You're drawing attention to yourself. <laughs> and I just, you know, the things, because he was sort of middle, I mean, he had certain middle class, yeah. you know, especially when it came to table manners and things. And I was such, you know, an animal. And uh, he would worry about my table manners or my lack of table manners. And he would be decked out in, like, black see-through net shirts with, like, five different color uh, bandanas and heavy keys. And I'd say, you know, you're worried, you know, that, you know, right. I, uh, you know, I'm not using the right spoon, you know. Right. It's just... there, are, there are a couple of moments in the, in, throughout the book, there are these great moments, and I don't know if you can, where, where, where Robert, he, he discovers you doing something, specifically the time, you know, I bring up your checkered past, the first time you smoked dope, and he comes back, and, and, he, and there's this continual, oh, Patty. Yeah, <laughs> he would say, Patty, no. That's what he would say, Patty, no. Right. I was like, yeah, he caught me because I never smoked pot. You know, I, I, I'm br- very bronchular, and I wasn't really that interested because the people that would smoke pot... I, I'm too edgy and too impatient. It would take them 20 minutes to put a coat on. You know, it's like, 
I just, so. But like in like 74 or something, I got involved in like Rastafarian music right. and I saw Harder They Come. So I bought a little pot and I'm trying to stuff it in a, in, you know, in a, inside a cigarette. And, um, and Robert came in and uh, I never told him that I was doing this because I was so secretive. And that's when he came in. Patty, no, you're smoking pot. I had twigs sticking out of the wrapper and seeds. I, I didn't know what I was doing. How was it? <laughs> So is it any good? It was a Mexican pot. You oh, know, it, was just, <laughs> it was fun. Right. You, you talk, you, you're assigned your blue star Venus. Um, why did he call you China? Uh, well, we just evolved. We had all kinds of little names. He right. called me Soki because I used to cry a lot. And then he called <laughs> me China, and I have no idea. That was like, I don't even remember why he started calling me China. Um, maybe because I had fragile aspects, I have no idea. And I called him Blue because he he started making a blue star right. under his signature. He made the the T and the Robert turn into a star. It was just little names. Right. Um, I I want to get get back because I'm interested in, in poetry and your poem. I, I just wanted to ask you um, as a kind of uh, a, a very precocious reader, and you discovered Rambeau very early on. And, and could you talk to us a little bit about Rambeau? I was also specifically interested in why Rambeau and not Baudelaire? Well, I think because, first of all, I discovered Rambeau first. I discovered Rambeau through the artist Medigliani. I loved Medigliani when I was in high school, and he loved Rambeau. And every time I read about him, he was spouting, he was eating hashish and spouting Rimbaud. So I wanted to know who Rimbaud was. Right. And then when I discovered Rimbaud, he just happened to look like Bob Dylan. So that was... <laughs> that was um, a killer blow. <laughs> but um, So I discovered Rimbaud first. And through Rimbaud, I discovered Verlaine. Mm-hmm. I discovered uh, Baudelaire, of course. And I admire all of the French poets, Nerval right. and... Uh, um, there's, there's so many of Lafarge. I, I right. love all of these, the French poets of that era. But Baudelaire, I um, appreciate him as being a precursor. I know that, you know that he developed the prose poem, and because of him, he helped beget Rimbaud. But I just prefer, truthfully, right. Rimbaud's language. I think Rimbaud's the better poet. I think that Baudelaire is like, deserves his place as a father of modernism, um, you know, of uh, important critical analysis of uh, painting, and, uh, and he's written some beautiful things. But I just truthfully prefer uh, right. uh, Rimbaud as a writer. Yeah, it seemed to be that it would get to that element of the relationship between self and style. To Baudelaire, this is always seems to be sort of distant. So just to get back, I mean, in terms of the task of the poet, seems to me in many ways to be the naming things. But again, back back to a personal, um, when, when you, you, you see Robert and then you lose him and then you find him again in that kind of mysterious, almost... Horatio Alger for girls element um, where you bump into him and he saves you um, and he introduces himself and you say that uh, you know I, I don't think of you as Bob Can yeah, I he call introduced you Rob? me as Bob well I had an uncle Bob who was a beautiful man but he was a big very big uh, portly sort of awkward guy and Robert was you know so lithe and slim and, and uh, it just I, I couldn't bring myself to call him Bob, so I said, can I call you Robert? And he said, okay. And actually, he became Robert right. ever after. I also have to ask you, were you the one who named Janis Joplin Pearl? No. Okay. Uh, because there's that moment on the stairs where you say, um, you say No, I, I just assumed. In fact, I, I, I elaborated on that a little in uh, the paperback because people asked me yeah. that. I didn't mean to. I just figured everyone assumed that right. they knew that was her nickname, but um, I was just, uh, uh, I was being clever, you know. Right. No, you're Pearl, a Pearl of a girl, because Pearl was her okay. nickname. Thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> there is, um, you know, enough with the French poets, let's go back to America. <laughs> There's a, the, the, the moment when you arrive in New York, I was, when Coltrane dies, and 
I was struck, I was looking at the book again last night, and in the next paragraph you talk about being in Frank O'Hara territory. And I couldn't help wonder the, the correlate Coltrane dying and Frank O'Hara. Did you have in mind then O'Hara's poem, The Day Lady Died? Uh, yes, when I thought of... Uh I thought of the day Lady died when I looked at the five, um, was it the five spot, uh, because she sang right. there. But really, I was thinking of lunch poems. Right. And I have to say, um, just uh, um, sidetracking a little, I went up and looked at the exhibit. It's just, it's so beautiful. Oh, my God. It's just so, such a bold and beautiful exhibit. And seeing that painting that Larry Rivers, I knew Larry Rivers, and... I haven't seen that painting in a long time, and that beautiful was his masterpiece, that yeah. painting of uh, Frank O'Hara. And, of course, the photograph you have of um, Walt Whitman, I've right. never seen it. Yeah, the Aikens that we got a couple of so years ago. I'm a Philly girl, and Aikens right. looms large, and yes. you know something that you learn, a painter that you learn about, that you study, that you see in the Philadelphia Museum. But I, I never even knew he took photographs like no, that. No, they're, so they're beautiful. fantastic. Um, so what about Whitman? What about him? No, no. <laughs> I'm well, asking Walt the Whitman, you know, uh, Wait, Walt you Whitman, know. I'm from the yeah. Camden area, and uh, Walt Whitman is buried there. He designed his own uh, um, uh, headstone. It's really like a little mausoleum in this sort of uh, um, beautiful, sprawling uh, cemetery in Camden, New Jersey. And uh, well, I love Walt Whitman. He, um, you know, he's really, to me, I think of like sort of a, it's almost like a spiritual link between William Blake, Walt Whitman, and Allen Ginsberg. Right. They all seem, the way you use the word, they're in flux, in flow with one another, and uh, all containing multitudes, all believing in the animating, animating of the human spirit into work and uh, all thinking of um, generations before them, all very generous men. And um, I love the story of, it's so funny, I didn't realize that there was such a controversy over uh, Leaves of Grass, because there's a great story of how a journalist came to see uh, President Lincoln, and he had Whitman's, you know, like a, a galley, I guess a, right. a galley of Whitman's poems, and. Uh, President Lincoln said, Can I, could I see that? And he says, I'll be right back. And he goes in another room and he starts reading and then no one could bother him. Right. And then the journalist wanted his book back and Lincoln didn't right. want to give it back. You know? <laughs> so. Now Whitman had this odd stalkerous relationship with Lincoln where he kind of trailed him around. But ne they actually never met. Even though I know, they, they... it's so sad because no. I know they would have loved to, really. I think they would have loved to meet. I, yeah, I actually have always... Um, just as a slight advertise, I did our show on Whitman, and I always thought that Whitman um, didn't want to meet Lincoln because he was, in some senses, afraid of him. That it was too, there was too much. No, I can understand um, that. You know, too much dailiness. But that, I think I think Lincoln would have adored he, yeah. the opportunity to talk to Whitman about his work. Right. You know, I think that's what what he would have wanted. What to go through poems and ask him about things because right. he was a serious reader right. of poetry. There's some. There is some notion that Billy Herndon, who Whitman's, um, I'm sorry, Lincoln's law partner, who was a first edition collector, had the Whitman Leaves of Grass and read it um, in the law offices back in Illinois. And that Lincoln would have heard him as early as that. But they, they again, in terms of this sort of aura, this connection between the, between them. Um, it was, as you say, indissoluble. It's uh, almost like you imagine them black and white. Yeah. Because Whitman always sit with his white beard and his white hat and his white suits, and Lincoln always in black, and his, right. you know, his image of, you know, this. Right. This, and so, this and, and and Lincoln is totally reticent, and Whitman is so voluble. Um, and, and I think that Whitman, in some sense, has felt if they were ever in the same room together, it would be the space-time continuum would blow up and it would like <laughs> fracture everybody else. Since since you mentioned the show and since George O'Keefe is in the show, would you mind reading your poem on George O'Keefe? Oh, okay. Um, I wrote this many many years ago, uh, probably around 1970. It comes with a picture that we were unable to borrow. <laughs> but. Uh, um, I wrote this in 1971, I believe, and uh, she was still alive. 
And what drew me to write it is um, a friend of mine, John McKendry, who was the curator of uh, the Met at the mm -hmm. time, had gone to visit her. And I said, well, what does she do now? And he said, well, she, for one thing, she's always, you know, got a stick and, you know, killing snakes that are on the property. <laughs> who wouldn't? George O'Keefe, great lady painter, what she do now? She goes out with a stick and kills snakes. George O'Keefe, all life still, cow skull, bull skull, skull, no bullshit. Pyrite, pyrite, she's no fool. She started out pretty, pretty, pretty girl. George O'Keefe, until she had her fill, painted desert flower cactus, hawk and head mule, coral watercolor, red coral reef, been around forever. George O'Keefe. <laughs> Great lady painter, what she do now? Go and beat the desert, stir dust bowl. Go and beat the desert, snake skin skull. Go and beat the desert, all life still. Thank you. You have, you have another poem, it's it's longer and grimmer, where you talk about Jackson Pollock's death as a work of art. Um, and, and to be honest, I, I have trouble with that. Could you uh, just well, that's, a, di that's a difficult poem. What it, that is is yes. actually, it's not so much about Jackson right. Pollock. It's really a, um, it's a uh, meditation on Robert Brisson's movie, Althazar, mm -hmm. Althazar, Balthazar. And uh, it, it's, it's sort of... Uh, it's difficult to break down, but yes. in a part of it, it talks about Jackson Pollock. Um, it says, from his mad wrists spin us. We're all children of Jackson Pollock. You know, we're all children of, like, the, the fusion of, uh, of uh, m mind and motion right. of uh, Jackson Pollock. But it talks about, I think you're talking about the... Yes. talks about, it says that he is... Uh, um, you know, uh, artist and murderer. Yes. Jackson. Well, yes, I wrote that as again as a young girl. I love Jackson Pollock, uh, um, but that I stepped away and looked at what he did at the end of his life. He um, uh, and I got it from a Jack, um, right. a uh, Frank O'Hara poem. First, Bunny died, and then Jackson. Jackson, I think, who always said there are no accidents, um, just brazenly went out, took his life, but he took a young girl right. down with him. Yeah. So yeah. in that way, he is a murderer. He created a, you know, and, and the debris of that, I was imagining it as like Pollock's last work, right. you know, the blood of this girl and his own being uh, the drips from their blood being Pollock's last right. work. It wasn't written with any judgment or anything. It was just uh, a meditation yeah, you may even be right. Well, it doesn't even matter <laughs> no, who's that. right or wrong. No. I, don't, I don't have any judgment of it. It was right. just a, a vision. But again, in this, what I sense is this sort of duality of your career. I'm thinking, because it's frankly been on my mind a bit, the hide-seek show, that on the one hand, Pollock, on the other hand, Jasper Johns for you. There's the element of quiet. The, I mean, the, the picture that we have in the show, ventriloquism, with a with sense of, of, of you know, creating a speaking with your own voice, developing your own voice in a way which is the, 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 the post-abstract expressionist um, sense of... Well, I, I mean, I don't know exactly really where we're going with this question, except if I no. try to glean something out of it. You know, for myself, I've always had an irreverent streak, mm -hmm. and that's got me in trouble <laughs> a lot, and it will always get me in trouble... But on the other hand, I also have a classical streak. Right. The other part of me, what do I listen to at night? I listen to Glenn Gould. What do I like to go to? I like to go to the opera. You know, how do I feel about the museum right now? I think that the museum did a beautiful and uh, elegant and bold exhibit. And I think that's my main concern. Right. You know, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't, ha I can't be pinned down to right. and and be expected to think I'm going to be all that way, right. you know, and uh, you know, um, 
relate to everything that happens as if I was a 22 punk rocker. You know, I'm just, I'm myself, you know. I'm just as, I can be just as uh, obnoxious as I was when I was 20. And I can also be, you know, hopefully a compassionate human being. But I'm not all one or the other. Because, as Walt Whitman said, we contain multitudes. (laughs) Where do, I mean, you... Where, I mean, you had, you had said again with the NBA, um, you know, to never forget the book. Do you, where do you see the humanities and the arts going? Where do you, I mean... Well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I'm not... The, the, who will decide that is the new generation. Right. I'm, not, I'm not a, you know, a um, sociological visionary. You know, perhaps when I was younger, at this point... It's it's going in places that I I probably couldn't even imagine. You know, I can't keep up with the you know the technology, the lack of privacy, you know, the blurring of every right. single line, uh, the cult of celebrity. I can't keep up with all of that. All I can do is just do my work, have faith in new generations that they'll you know navigate through all the crap that is being issued or. You know this uh, this um, obsession with um, mm-hmm. notoriety, and that they'll they'll do good work. Right. Um, will you play for us? Um, yeah, I can do a song. Is it time already? What? Yeah. I'll just sit there. I mean, okay, I'm not much of it. You can just sit there. I'll just. <laughs> I don't really have the proper technology, but that's okay. Um, so, uh, this little song is uh, a, a song I wrote when I was um, feeling unappreciated, it was before I won the National Book Award. <laughs> and. Uh, But at the same time as I was feeling a little down, you know, my mind was all already computing all the, you know, thing, ways in which I'm lucky. And one is, is this thing. I like the way you talk about it, this flow. I have had, you know, you know I've had the, the desire to work, to produce, to write, to think, to explore since I was a very young child. And that's its own reward. So I thought about William Blake and how this man, with all his gifts and everything he gave to us, uh, was also a um, a victim of the Industrial Revolution. Here he was, uh, such a beautiful engraver, hand-colorer, doing these beautiful books one by one, songs of innocence and songs of experience and on and on at a time when the printing press is invented and they can do thousands and he becomes obsolete almost overnight. So William Blake, the poet, the painter, the activist, um, uh, the engraver, was nearly forgotten in his lifetime, had very little success and died poverty-stricken. But he maintained his vision. He did his work and he did it with... uh, a certain amount of joy to this last breath. So I think he's a very good example. In my Blakeian year I was so disposed Toward a mission yet unclear Advancing pole by pole By chin breathed into my ear Obey this simple code When road is paved in gold When road is just a road Am I blinking? Such a woe 
for schism The pain in our existence Was not as I envisioned Boots that tramp from track to track Worn down to the soul When road was paved in gold When road was just a road Temptation, yet a hiss Just a shallow spear Robed with cowardice Brace yourself for bitter flack For a life divine A labyrinth of riches Never shall unwind the tears that bind the pilgrim sack are stitched into the Blakeian back so throw off your stupid cloak embrace all that you fear cause joy will conquer all despair in my Blakeian year So throw off your stupid cloak Embrace all that you fear Cause joy will conquer all despair In my Blakeian year In my Blakeian year In my Blakeian year I think we'll close on that lovely note. We have time for questions. Um, we don't have mics, so if you don't mind me repeating the question, also please try to put your question in the form of a question. <laughs> and I think we need the house lights because I can't see any hands. Or maybe there are no questions. Anybody have a question? Come on. Yeah, well, you pick them, Patty. Okay, right there. Could you stand up, sir? I really like the stories you have about the Chelsea Hotel. And I really like the stories you have about Harry Smith, uh, who was a great folklorist uh, and one you know about. But I wonder if you could tell a little bit about what Harry Smith taught you about folklorists. Not about how he was always cadging money, but sort of, you know, the, the art that he helped us learn about. Well, my, my um, Harry had such a diverse um, um, field of knowledge, and really, in all the time I spent with Harry, uh, we we talked mostly about alchemy and um, magic, and uh, except sometimes he would play tapes for me that he had made that no one had heard yet. Uh, I mentioned he played me uh, a little tape of a song. Uh, done by a girl who said she had been Jesse James' girlfriend, and uh, he had Kiowa India rituals. But he, he just, we just listened to them. You know, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I experienced with Harry and, uh, and had adventures with Harry, but um, I wasn't like a student or anything, so I couldn't really, someone else could talk to you about uh, all of, you know, you know, more, you know, uh, musicology and things like that who, who spent... Because Harry, everybody has different stories. Some people can say, I learned everything about the blues from Harry or I learned everything about string figures from Harry. And uh, me and Harry spent a lot of time on magic. <laughs> Would you repeat the question? <laughs> oh, he just wanted to know what I learned from Harry Smith. Sorry, my yes. bad. That was my job. But I'll, okay. <laughs> yes, I know, fell down. Yes? Yes. Yes. Hi, 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. Now, having a 22-year-old artist daughter, um, I'm wondering if you have any ideas or, uh, you know, what, what artists can do today because it's a whole different world in the art scene. You know, they can't go to New York. Or sure they can. Well, um, just, to re just to repeat the question, this is a follow-on from my last question to Patty, which was what the arts today and, and how you can make your way in them. Um, although the little white purse probably has to have about $300 in it. Well, I mean, I, uh, when, uh, don't forget, I went to New York City looking for a job, not, to, not just, you know, um, to fulfill my dreams as an artist. I went there because there was employment at the time but really, I would tell anyone that, especially a young person, what they should be interested in is the evolution of their work. You know, it doesn't matter where they're working. You don't have to be in New York City. You can be in Detroit, Philadelphia, Newark. You can be here. Any, you know, you can be, go to Europe. It doesn't matter where you are um, unless you're trying to build a scene, um, and maybe that would be more important. But... The important, real important thing is just to focus on work. I talk to people all the time, and they seem so, you know, should I get a manager? Should I get an agent? Where can I go to get a gallery? And, you know, first of all, the, it's, it's your motivation, what you want to do, what you want to give people, what you have to say, uh, how you can develop your skills. And, um, I mean, I'm 63 years old, and I'm still learning. You know, there's a lot of... Uh, it's it's work, hard work, and the first thing one shouldn't should the last thing one should be worrying about is if, how they're going to get famous, how they're going to get a record deal, how they're going to get in a gallery. The first thing is just developing your work into something worthy. What are you working on now? Me? Yeah. I'm um, making a record, writing a writing. Writing. And. Uh, <laughs> Taking photographs, drawing, I'm, you know, I'm always working, always doing something. In the middle. No other song captures the supernatural ecstasy of a feeling of being in love, like the song Dancing Barefoot. Oh, thank you. I've been entranced with that song all of my life. Thank you. Do you want to play it? Um, <laughs> Can you? Well, he. Uh, uh, he has asked about my song, Dancing Barefoot. It's uh, very interesting that you should ask about that because uh, I'm writing a major piece that is, uh, uh, that song is inspiring a very bi uh, big piece. But to bring it down quickly, uh, Dancing Barefoot I wrote um, in response to, it has three levels. One is to the people because I wrote it uh, uh, part of it to the people, um, and it's about communication with the people uh, as a performer. Another level is communication with God, my creator, and another level, uh, the most, uh, probably the most prominent thing is, it was a love song to my um, late husband, Fred Sonic Smith, and so when it says, uh, um, um, could it be he's taken over me? Uh, that's uh, about him. <laughs> yes. Uh, no. I think that it's no, an just, overblown. It's okay. No, I, I just was going to repeat it for the... Uh, <laughs> well, she wants to... Sorry, go no, ahead. No, go ahead. Just you the... Re <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, the removal of the Wanarovich video. Um, I was well, I we think probably it brought... <laughs> it brought more attention to the video than it probably would have gotten in the first place. So um, um, I think that... That wasn't our intention. <laughs> I, I really, I, I, I think it's more humorous than anything. I don't think that it's, uh, 
You know, some, I read somewhere where someone compared it to what happened with the Robert Maplethorpe exhibit in Cincinnati. Right. There's no comparing the two issues. Uh, they shut down Robert's uh, exhibit. Uh, they slandered him as a human being. They called him a pedophile. Um, it was, uh, um, and he wasn't alive, of course, to defend himself. I think that really this it's like a snafu that we're in the middle of. Um, it, it, it's it's almost you know it's almost like a this uh, overreaction of uh, religions uh, toward any examination of uh, of, of uh, what what they think is proper, and it's really ridiculous because most art. I mean, from Boonwell to Mexican retablos are much more shocking than this stupid little plastic crucifix being with ants crawling on it. Uh, I imagine, I'm, I know I'm going off the track, but I, no, I've thought fun. about this. I was imagining Jesus coming back and looking at this and, and embracing the ants and, uh, <laughs> and being appalled by the crucifix. Uh, <laughs> And I have to say, we can't forget the Smithsonian is a, you know, it, it, it receives federal funding. If the Smithsonian lost their funding, hundreds and hundreds of people, I believe, would be out of work. We would lose such an important uh, institution. I think, you know, whether it's all sort of dumb, the Smithsonian has done a beautiful job. This exhibition is so strong, is so beautiful, is so diverse and so elegant. Um, I was just nearly moved to tears by it, and I don't think that it should be clouded by this one issue that is unfortunate. And uh, um, and really, um, let me just say a heartfelt thank you. Well, <laughs> well, I just I'm grateful for the exhibition. I think it's. I, I also think it's interesting, you know, 10 years ago or more or less, the, there would be a public outcry because of all the uh, male schmoozing in the pictures, you know, uh, or whatever. But there was nothing of that. You know, what, what, what are people worried about? Ants on a crucifix. I mean, I think that it shows some progress in our country. <laughs> Evolution of religious views and what God means to Pettisville. Well, let's 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 do sum evolution. That up in let's, two minutes. Let's, <laughs> now we've got ten. Well, I couldn't really express what God means to me in such a short period of time, uh, since you know it's part of my whole being. But um, my my um, I received God, the idea of God first from my mother and prayer. And then religion came. I went to Bible school. Uh, I was a Jehovah Witness till I was 12. Um, I studied um, various uh, um, uh, faiths. I've looked into all faiths. I've been to all kinds of churches. I loved going in a church and sitting. And, well, I have, uh, I have chosen not to have a religion. I've chosen to go back to the original moment where my mother gave me God in telling me of God and gave me prayer. And that's all I need. I do like to go into churches, especially when I'm on the road. You know, churches are so beautiful, if I'm certain Christ would agree a bit material. Um, but I find them beautiful. You know, some of our greatest art has been uh, uh, committed for the church. So... I like to go in churches and light a candle or a temple or a mosque, uh, but it's more aesthetic, really. And um, I don't need any specific religion to have a relationship with God and to pray. You know, that's, that's part of my, my daily routine. There's somebody way in the back. Betty, can you tell us the inspiration for your poem, Radio Packet? Um, yes. 
he want, he's asking about the uh, Radio Baghdad, which was on our record tramping. Um, my, uh, of course, I was, um, like many of you, uh, protested against the Bush administration going into Iraq. And I was just devastated when we went into Iraq. And I wanted to uh, respond to it, uh, not only as a human being, but as an artist. Um, but I decided the way to do it would not be from a political viewpoint, but a more humanistic viewpoint. So I went in the recording studio with my band. I had no specific lyrics. We had a, a riff. Um, my guitarist, Oliver Ray, had written a guitar riff, and I said, just improvise and trust me uh, and follow me. And um, I imagined being a mother, uh, being a mother in Baghdad, trying to sing her children to sleep as the Americans were bombing. I imagined what tried to imagine being a mother myself, what that would have felt like, you know, trying to, you know, you know, you know, wanting her children to feel safe, but at the same time when bombs were falling. So it's really from the point of view of a mother, and uh, that's that's where the uh, impulse came to improvise it. Yes. Um, as, uh, as you've written about Robert Mapplethorpe, I'm wondering if you feel that your story has been told through your work, or do you feel there's someone out there who will write your story in the way you've written his? <laughs> I was going to ask if, I was going to ask and actually close proceedings by asking, are you going to write about yourself? Well, I love to, um, I am writing another book already. I started, I, once I finished that book, I couldn't stop writing. I just kept going. And because uh, my mind, I so disciplined myself to, to um, write and think about, you know, all of these times. I have a certain time period that I would like to write about from a different point of view. Uh, Just Kids was completely filtered as much as I could, it was filtered through Robert and I, because that was, that was my task. But I would like to write a book, even sort of in the same time period, from my own point of view. Yes. That really is, you know, my thoughts, my thoughts in being a girl, my thoughts in being a young artist, my thoughts in writing the songs that I wrote. But I... I like writing about when I was younger, especially childhood. It's, um, I don't think that I'll write a whole lot after a certain period because um, I'm, it's just too close to me. But um, I can't imagine really that anybody could write my story um, past a certain age, except maybe my daughter, who knows me best. Well, we'll have her when she does that. So, again, Patty Smith, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.